Welcome to Menzine. Hello and welcome to Menzine, a brand new podcast with me, David Fitzgerald, and Dr. David Gwynn. Now today, we're going to be taking a look at a subject which most men will avoid, and it's prostate cancer. Menzine, exploring men's physical and mental well-being. David, thank you for talking about, well, something which is a little difficult to get to grips with. What is prostate cancer, first of all? Well, hi, Fitz. Nice to be with you to talk about this today. Yeah, I agree. It's something that a lot of men find very difficult to talk about. Put it simply... It's just disorganised growth of cells within the prostate gland. Which is where, though? The prostate gland is a gland about the size of a walnut. Really? It sits underneath the bladder, and it's between the bladder and the urethra, which is the tube, essentially, that runs to the end of the penis that lets you pee. So that's where it sits, deep in the pelvis, right underneath your bladder. Now, you get these tales of, I have a raised count whatever that means. I was going to ask, actually, do you have a prostate examination or is it something you have to ask for? Well, that's interesting. In my daily practice, I get called quite regularly from patients saying, oh, doc, I'm ringing you up for one of my well-man checks. And that's met with a bit of a confused look on my face, really. I think the confusion lies in that there's slightly different advice in America as there is in the UK Mm. around who should access what. Americans, if you're over 50, they recommend an annual PSA screen. We'll come to the PSA test in a minute, perhaps talk about that. I think that's what you're getting at with regards to a test for your prostate. In the UK, in the late 90s, the NHS, following lots of research, decided that the decision to have a PSA test would be one between a doctor, clinician and the patient, to put it in the context of the patient's symptoms or whatever might be troubling you. Because the PSA test isn't black and white, and that's the problem with it. A lot of patients come to me asking me directly, Doc, can I have a PSA test, please? You go, well, hang on what do you think the PSA test is going to tell you? And very often they think, well, it's going to tell me if I got prostate cancer or not. Unfortunately, as with most things in medicine, it isn't that black and white, and I wish it did tell you directly if you had cancer or not, but it doesn't. It's helpful in order for us to gauge your risk of whether you might be developing prostate cancer or not, but it isn't black or white. Right, so is there a level? You've discussed levels with me in the past because I've gone through a small examination. If you have a raised level, what does that mean? A level of what? Well, let's go back to what the prostate is to start with. I told you it's a gland that's underneath the bladder, but let's get a bit more intimate into it. What does it actually do? All the prostate does is it produces the fluids and some enzymes and sugars that are responsible for giving you semen, fluid. That's what the prostate does. So your sperm come from the testicles, of course, but the fluid all comes from the prostate. So it was in the late 70s really that this was really found. It's a little molecule or chemical that's produced by the prostate, and it's called a prostate-specific antigen, PSA. That's what it stands for. Right. And it's responsible for making semen liquid. That's all the PSA does. And it's accessible via the bottom. No. <laughs> and hang on. <laughs> I'm going to start that again, Fitz. I'm not no, entirely no, sure what fine. you're getting at here. All right. Where do you, pick, where do you poke your finger? And so the- <laughs> Basically, you need a doctor with very warm, thin fingers. <laughs> Um, The PSA is a blood test. Yes, the prostate produces this chemical, but it seeps into the bloodstream and a small amount of it is in the bloodstream and you can pick it up on very sensitive tests which give you your PSA result. Right. That's where we are. So patients will come to you and if we deem that a PSA test is necessary, it will involve a blood test. So that's the result done. How do you do it? I mean, do you scrape it? Is there some sort of method like that? What, to get the PSA? The actual test, yeah. Yeah, the actual test is a simple blood test through the vein. Ah, right, so it's not... 
No, no, oh, no, that's splendid. a completely different thing. That's, that's got nothing to do with your PSA whatsoever. What's that test called with the... Um... So, the posh words, the DRE, Digital Rectal Examination. Clearly, we're going to have to get this out of the way, aren't we? A Digital we are. Rectal Examination. Because every man that's listening to this at the moment goes, at some point, I'm going to have to lie face down and grin and bear it. <laughs> Smile, please. It isn't the position I'd recommend, Fitz, but, you know, if, if that's how you want to go forward with this. <laughs> Let's get this elephant in the room out of the way. So, a rectal examination is important. It's part of how we put this together. I'm looking for information for me fits around how do I diagnose you how do I worry whether something's going on with you or not we'll talk about symptoms in a minute perhaps but if we're talking about an examination yeah it's a rectal examination it's a finger in the bottom for want of a better phrase people go good god why why do we need to do this well it's important because there are things that we can tell through that examination for the patient as to what might point in a direction of what is or is not going on we look to see if the prostate is smooth whether it's enlarged whether it's irregular whether there are hard bits to the prostate for want of a better phrase how painful it is for the patient clearly unpleasant for anybody but is it exquisitely painful is there one area of the prostate that might be more painful than another are the irregularities in one bit or the other it's all helpful for us to try and build a picture of what's going on for the patient and it's vitally important in diagnosing this problem a simple question what are the symptoms of prostate cancer i mean first of all does it affect urine flow that's certainly possible yeah that's certainly a very common complaint but if we could look at the anatomy a little bit again we've gone through it again sitting beneath the bladder here perhaps uh-huh. if we understood where it is exactly and how it affects your waterworks then perhaps we could figure out together the symptoms that you're most likely to present with so if we just draw a very simple picture of a bladder i remember the bladder is a glorified sac as a glorified balloon it fills with fluid and as it fills with fluid it expands and as it expands it sends more and more signals to the brain to tell you you need to pee you need to pee you need to pee you need to pee so the more that bladder fills the more urgency that you get we now know as we've just discussed that the prostate lies underneath the bladder right and through the middle of that prostate you get what we call the urethra or the tube that goes to the end of your penis and it's through that that you pee so you're telling me does it affect your waterworks well let's think about it so you've got your prostate here as a think of it as my fist there (laughs) And you're <laughs> it's getting increasingly graphic. <laughs> yeah. Think of your prostate as your fits, and your tube from the bladder to your urethra flows through the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, if that prostate gets bigger for any reason, it's going to squeeze on that tube, isn't it? Ooh, I see. It's a gradual process. It doesn't cause pain very often. But what's that going to cause? Think about it. Well, basic plumbing here. If you've got pressure on the outside of a tube, what's going to happen? Well, flow through that tube is going to be impacted, isn't it? So, yeah, you're going to get poor flow because you're not going to pee over the walls you could when you were 21. So your flow isn't as good as it used to be. The other thing that it can do is, after you've been for a wee, you put the old boy away, you get a bit of dribbling. Oh, God, I thought I'd finished, you know, and you probably think you did, but there's still some retained urine within this complex that then dribbles out when you think you've finished, see? So, poor flow, we call it terminal dribbling, or just dribbling at the end of a pee when you think you've finished. You can also get this sensation of not emptying your bladder properly. So, you've been for a wee... You think you're finished, you're fine, you walk away, two minutes later, you're like, oh, I need to go again, I don't think I've really finished that properly. True. So these are really, really common problems. Some people get interrupted flow, that's another really common one, where they are standing there at the loo, and it just stops, starts, stops, starts, you know, what's going on here, you know, out of their control. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's a common thing that men come and see me about. There are some other sort of red flags here that we need to talk about, Fits, You know, if you've got blood in your urine, well, yeah, I mean, you clearly need to see a doctor if you've got blood in your urine. Sure. But of course, you know, if you've got something in that bladder that might be pushing through or eroding into the wall of that tube, you could bleed, giving you blood in your urine. So blood in the urine is it really go and see someone, get some help, very much a red flag. And now, Dr. David's medical fact. You're listening to Menzi. Now, I know David collects fascinating medical facts. He's been tweeting me about it. 
<laughs> no, I'm sorry, but the last one... for some of us fits. Well, it was fascinating. First of all, <laughs> cupping. What? <laughs> I saw it in the Olympic swimming and diving. Now, what is cupping? It caught my eye as well, Fitz. We was watching the Olympics, wasn't it? It was a great spectacle of sport that was. And I know you're quite friendly with Tom Daly, is that right? Indeed, yeah. yeah. Great. He hasn't cupped as far as I'm aware. Well, who knows? <laughs> You'll have to ask him next time you see him. So I was watching the Olympics, and you may have seen it as well, with all the diving. These guys and the swimmers actually would come out the water, and they'd have all these, well, essentially look like glorified love bites all over their back, wouldn't they? Great yeah. Big red welts on their back. So I was like, well, what the heck's going on here? Who left that octopus oh, yeah. in there? <laughs> so what's it all about? And apparently it's called cupping. And it's an old-fashioned Chinese medicine, I think, is how I understand it, where they use a glass globe, or essentially a glass vial, I suppose, hmm. and they light a candle or a wick or a torch of some sort underneath, pop it on your skin. The candle obviously then causes a vacuum, which extinguishes the flame, but also adheres it to your skin. Well, you all put mugs around our mouths when we were younger, didn't we? Try and suck the air of it and see if you could pull it off. You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so exactly the same. Only last week in a board... <laughs> management meeting (laughs) so apparently yeah and and the idea of this is that it improves blood flow to the area of concern to promote healing moxie bastion that Um, was the word yes believe me look it up it's one of the few big words I know (laughs) moxie bastion but does it work yeah well mm, Mm. I looked at this the BMJ obviously wrote a little thing about it a few weeks ago and there's very little evidence that it has a very benefit I think the reason that these athletes win all these medals is not because they're getting these suction cups on their back, but because they train eight hours a day and they're probably supreme athletes, aren't they? However, Mm. I'd argue, at that level of sport, I think your margins are so small between these guys, how good they all are. I think anything that gives you even a psychological advantage, as long as it doesn't cause harm, whatever works for you, isn't it? Okay. As long as it doesn't hurt them. But I'm not sure it's going to make you or I compete with Tom Daly in three years' time in the class. No, I don't think so. If you want a love bite, though, from an (laughs) Olympic swimming pool... It's the thing to do. Trust me. Dr. David's Medical Fact. Contact us on Twitter at Menzine Podcast or connect with us via Facebook. Just search for Menzine Podcast. Well, let's just take a step back because we could be frightening people now. These are prostate problems, Mm -hmm. not prostate cancer. Every male is going to go through a slight swelling of the prostate. That's a great point, Fitz. As we get older, Mm. almost all men will experience a growth in that gland. That prostate will get bigger with age, much like waistlines and ears. It's the sort of thing that gets bigger (laughs) as we get older. So prostates, yeah, indeed, prostates get bigger with time. And that's a natural process, but there is a condition where the prostate grows in a more accelerated fashion than that, and that's called benign prostatic hypertrophy BPH that's not prostate cancer but it is a growth in that prostate and that would give you very very similar symptoms right as we've just described the process is exactly the same the way that it will affect your body is exactly the same so having these symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that you have cancer but it's what we want to exclude right Let's jump forward then. If you, as a doctor, suspect that it is cancerous, how do you check? I'm assuming you take a sample. Yeah, well, let's go from there. So the story so far then is that someone's come to see me and he goes, Doc, my pee's gone a bit odd. Mm. I'm peeing all the time. It stop starts while I'm going and the flow is just isn't there. It takes me ages to have a pee. You know, it didn't used to, but it's taking me ages now. Quick story. I had a chap come and see me and he used to work on sites in the building trade, but he was often on site where there weren't toilets, obviously, breaking ground, new ground, whatever. And he used to work on his own quite a lot, but then he ended up on a new job with a team of guys. And he said, all the guys said to him, what's wrong with you? And he was like, well, what do you mean? Because he kept going around every single bush he could find for a wee, or he'd go behind the plant machinery 
for a wee mm. or he'd turn his back in the corner and go for a wee <laughs> and it had happened so gradually for him that he'd kind of normalised it you know he thought oh this is just normal I just need to pee I mean he said this isn't normal and he came to see me and he said it's normal I'm just getting old and I was like look you know, you know <laughs> there's going for a pee a lot and there's going for a pee a lot and he was a little bit on the a lot spectrum another one the classic one is guys playing golf they get to hole three four and they got to run to the bushes Yes. Yeah. I think it might depend how many drinks you might have had before you started your round. But, you know, going three or four holes, think, all right. But if you're needing to go three or four times to the bushes on the course on your way around, that might not be normal. That might be something you want to talk about, particularly if everyone else in that group isn't. Yeah. It's easy for men to ignore all these things. We all do it. You know, I'll be fine. I just need to pee a bit more of my mates. You know, that's fine. But think about it. You know, if you're realising and recognising that you're going a lot more than your friends, it might be something that you need to bite the bullet here and have a chat to a professional about and go, you know, is this normal or not? Yeah. Unfortunately, that does sound quite familiar. I mean, you know, the old adage of when you reach my age now, 60, never pass a chance of a pee or a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) That's my motto. (laughs) Not at the same time, maybe. Not at the same time. So we mentioned about, well, what can people expect before they present? So we've mentioned the flow issues, the waterwork issues. The other things to recognise are if you're getting erectile difficulties, if you're getting blood in your semen, Mm -hmm. that's a big thing that you need to tell us about as well. As I said, these are all potential symptoms of prostate cancer, but they can represent other things as well. So I don't want people to be fatalistic about these symptoms, thinking, oh, that's it, I've definitely got prostate cancer, that's it, what's the point? That's not the case at all. There could be several other things that cause these symptoms as well. I think what I'm trying to get at here today with you, Fitz, is that people need to just have the tenacity to just go and talk about these things because it may not be what you think it is but it may be something else but i can hear shouted questions how common is it and is it fatal oh dear let's deal with the first one first how common is it it's common right between one in five one in six men really yeah we'll have the diagnosis it's more common in men of afro-caribbean descent up to one in four one in five of that population will have this diagnosis at some point it's the biggest cancer diagnosis in men right is it fatal was a question based on ignorance there i mean is it curable let's put it that way. Perhaps it'll make sense if we go through the journey a little bit further with you then, so that we can understand sort of how do we decide what circumstances, where you are with your prostate cancer then. So say you came to see me with all these symptoms, you've had the rectal examination fine, I've done the blood test for you and I've come back with a PSA that's a bit raised. Where do I go next to figure out what's going on with you then? Well, your doctor will then refer you to the urologist. These are the specialists that know all about this stuff backwards and they are specialists in prostate cancer for us. Now, what they will do is they will see you in an outpatient clinic. They'll go through the story in a bit more detail. They'll look at your results that you've had so far, and they'll have a conversation with you about where we go next. So we need to see what exactly is causing you these symptoms, don't we? Mm -hmm. If we've excluded potential infections for you, irritations for you, then we need to look at what else, what is it then in this prostate that's giving you the problem? I think it's important to stress on the PSA test that if we could just go back to that briefly with the PSA test is that I said to you it wasn't diagnostic yes or no cancer because there are several things that can make it go up. Infection can cause your PSA to go up. You may not have cancer at all. Trauma can make the PSA go up. Fitz, have you heard of mammals? Mammals? M-A-M-I-L-S. No. Middle-aged men in lycra. Oh, God. No, now you really have turned my stomach. Um, (laughs) Just on the way here, I was thinking, you know, it's these guys pouring themselves into lycra, aren't they? On these carbon fibre bikes with saddles that are about that thick. Ah, right, yeah. Razor-thin saddles. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. And you're wearing lycra, so everything's crushed in. (laughs) Yeah, let's put it like that, shall we? It's like a British rail sandwich. (laughs) So we know that regular cyclists on narrow saddles tend to have a raised PSA because of the trauma of that saddle. So there are several things that you might not expect that can cause the PSA to go up, so it's not just prostate cancer, which is why the American way of doing it is of just have a test every year and no matter what, and therefore 
Well, we need to put it in the context of what else might be affecting you. So I think we've got a slightly more nuanced way of looking at it. You know, you have a conversation and then you have the test rather than just blindly testing everyone because there are several things. Because say that you just went for a blind test of the PSA and it came back high. Well, you and I both know what's going to come to your mind. You're going to think, oh, there we are. I've got prostate cancer. Well, it's not that simple. The PSA test is not that specific. So hmm. it's important that we put it in the context. So what do the urologists do? You sit in their clinic and they've gone through it all with you. Well, they're going to want to have a look at a bit more detail of your prostate, aren't they? And this is where there are two major things here that they use. They use what they call multiparametric MRI scans. We've all heard of MRI scans. These are particularly sensitive MRI scans to look at the prostate itself. It takes four different sets of images from different angles and layers it all together. It's incredibly clever technology. But that will give the urologist an idea of where exactly within the prostate this problem lies. Now, the other thing that people are going to need is a biopsy. Ooh. Yeah. This is where you send the little grabby bits in and... The little grabby bits in. <laughs> and now, Dr. David's medical fact. Thank you for listening to Menzine. Now, I know Dr. David collects fascinating medical facts as we go along. And the last thing you sent me was about deteriorating eyesight amongst children. What yeah. was that about? I bet your mum told you when you were younger not to watch the television because your eyes would go swear. Yeah. Or was it just black and white and radio back then? I can't remember when it was. Thank you. Move yeah. on. <laughs> he knows how old I am. So, yeah. So, we're told, don't we, if you watch too much television that your eyes will go square or it'll affect your eyesight. We don't believe our parents do when they tell us this. I keep telling my children about it. If they watch too much screen that it'll affect their eyes and they've got to get out and run about because I've had enough of it. But we've got to limit this screen time, haven't we? Okay. Yeah. But the results are in and us parents are right all along. Really? Yeah, absolutely right. There's been studies done, it was recently published in China, but the same things have now been published in the UK where children's vision has deteriorated through the lockdown periods because of increased screen time use, screen watching. Now, you'd think this would be a small impact, but no, it isn't. The research shows there's lots and lots and lots of these kids. Their vision has vastly deteriorated in quality through the pandemic because they've been using their screens so much. I mean, this is no criticism of parents, there's no criticism of anyone. Crikey, trying to entertain kids through a pandemic has been incredibly difficult for all yeah, of us. Yeah, of course. And there can be a lot of benefit for these kids from all the stuff that you can access online. But there is clearly now a link between excessive screen use and deteriorating vision in children. That is a shame. And But yeah, I must admit, I've had two migraines in my entire life and both were in front of a screen and I've been there for nearly eight hours trying to set up a computer system. Well, you think about it, Fitz, you know, when you're looking at a screen, the muscles of your eye have to keep your eyes focused on a very, very small section. Yep. And those muscles can get tired and fatigued. That's why often people get headaches when they're using screens for prolonged periods, because those muscles need to relax and they need a chance to ease their contraction. So yeah, using screens for prolonged periods of time can cause headaches anyway, but it is interesting that these studies have proven that there's been an actual measurable decrease in children's visual acuity through the pandemic. You're listening to Menzine. Dr. David's Medical Fact. Contact us on Twitter at Menzine Podcast or connect with us via Facebook. Just search for Menzine Podcast. Can I go back to my diagram, Fitz? Okay. Oh, no, not another. So this diagram. is your... <laughs> so the prostate lies intimately close to your rectum, which is why we can examine it that way. So what we need to do is get samples of that prostate tissue to see where and how much and what's going on exactly. So yes, a probe will be introduced into the rectum. And what they do then is they introduce a tool to take tiny little bites within the prostate itself. Yeah, makes your eyes water, doesn't it? Can you feel it? Yeah, it's done under local anaesthetic, but it's not comfortable. Mm. All right, It's a means to an end. Right. Now think about 
about what these guys are trying to achieve here. Each ufologist will have their own way of doing this, and believe me, they know exactly what they're doing. They've done this millions of times. But the way I've had it explained to me as a GP is that essentially think of your prostate. Let's go for a different fruit, shall we? Let's say apple this time, for example, fits. Okay. Nice, yes. We're bringing in all the food groups today. We've gone through sandwiches and walnuts already. <laughs> so if we think of an apple with the pips in the middle. Yeah. I hasten to add, doctor is now drawing once again. <laughs> so this is <laughs> this is how you need to think about it. Okay? But you don't know where those pips are in the apple. Yeah. Okay, so all you've got is the outside of the apple, but you don't know where the pips are. And if the pips represent your cancer. So your urologist needs to go in there, take a bite, 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 take a bite. Wow. So you might hit it on the first or the fifth, Twelfth. sixth time? Twelfth. Yeah. Twelfth. Yeah. This is like body battleships. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit more specific than that, Fitz. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. where the MRI becomes really helpful as well, you know, because that can target where these biopsies are sent so that these guys know exactly where they need to be taking more detailed biopsies from. But that's essentially yeah. how the biopsies work. And what they do then is they take these samples and they look at all of them under a microscope and then they grade the tissue that they see underneath the microscope. And that's what gives you what you call a Gleason score. Right, a Gleason score. So a lot of men who are listening to this may be recently diagnosed or may know somebody who's been diagnosed with prostate cancer and heard mention of this Gleason score. Now, the Gleason score essentially tells us how developed the cancer is. The word we use is differentiated, but don't worry about that. But it's about the extent of this cancer within the prostate itself. And it can tell us if the prostate is contained within a small part of that prostate or whether the cancer has emerged through the edge of that prostate and is either threatening to escape from the prostate and go elsewhere or is just affecting the margin at the moment or whether it's processed through already so this is very important this is what helps guide decision making as to where they go next as to how to best manage your disease well where do we go next what is the treatment this is very much dependent on your gleason score and to everyone who's listening we can't give individualized advice here because everybody's prostate cancer will be different yeah and obviously your urologist will have all the best evidence to manage your specific type of prostate cancer and your scoring system and how it fits into the context of your clinical picture. But in very generalised terms, think about it, we need to sort these cancer cells out, don't we? Yeah. So we either want them gone, yeah. and how do we get rid of them? Well, easiest option to perhaps understand is you take the prostate out. You can live without it? Mm. Yeah. It's a decently sized operation. You know, it's a pelvic operation. And as I said, this prostate lies deep underneath the bladder in your pelvis, so it's not a small operation. But it's relatively common, you know, it's one of the commonest things they do for this. And it will remove the prostate entirely. And therefore, if the cancer is maintained within that prostate, the issue is essentially dealt with. If that Gleason score or the test that they've done suggests that the edge of that prostate has been affected or that the prostate cancer cells have started to emerge out of the prostate, they may decide that they want to do prostate surgery for you and also perhaps some targeted radiotherapy. Do you understand much about radiotherapy, Fitz? Do you know much about it? No, to be honest with you, not a clue. How does it work? What do you use these days? Essentially what they use is they use beams of radiation to essentially destroy the cancerous cell. Right. So in prostate cancer, of course, they will be targeted to the prostate gland to try and destroy the cancerous tissue that's causing the problem. Let's be realistic, Fitz. You know, there are complications of this surgery. It's a big operation. There's a large complication of erectile dysfunction that can be as high as up to 50% in some cases. All right, so it's not without its difficulties, this surgery. And it can leave some people with urinary problems. About 2-3% might have difficulties with passing water or with incontinence after the surgery. So this is why good conversation with your specialist has to go here around what are the pros and cons for me here of having this surgery done and what options are available to you in your particular case. So you're between a rock and a hard place. You know, you've been told you've been given the diagnosis of prostate cancer and then you've been told these are the options that we've got to try and help you with it. The devil lies in the detail. And the hard part is for patients that have to make a decision around, well, what's best for me? 
there's a genuine case for some patients to say, I don't want that surgery done because I don't want the risk of that. And I'd rather live with a diagnosis that I have without surgery. And there are others that would go, doc, take it out and I'll deal with whatever the consequences may be. Well, that's a very, very individual patient decision to be made. All sure. right? And there's no right or wrong answer there, Fitz, either. It's really important that patients feel empowered to make their own decisions as to what's right for them. So you could end up having to wear a bag? Oh, okay. Let's be careful what we mean by bag a second then. Do you mean a bladder bag? I didn't realise there were types of bag. Yeah. So bags as a complication of a prostate surgery would be unusual. That's good, right. So I suppose what you're looking for is if you had huge bladder involvement with your prostate problems and that was exposed on surgery, could you end up coming out of surgery with a bag? Possibly. But that would have been something that you would have had a frank discussion with your surgeon about before the operation as a risk that would have been raised because they would have seen it through the imaging, through the MRI scans or through the CT scans that they do beforehand. But that isn't highest on my list as issues that would affect you after a prostate surgery. And when you think of the alternative without doing something about it, those are pretty small. Well, what I would say to you as I'm trying to explain, I mean, for some people, they're huge problems and they'd rather not risk those issues and maintain perhaps managing their cancer through non-surgical means. I mean, non-surgical means, again, you'd have to have a decent conversation with your specialist about this, but there are hormonal treatments that they can use for some forms of prostate cancer, not all, but there are some forms of prostate cancer that will respond to, what should we call them? Let's call them testosterone blockers. The prostate gland is really sensitive to testosterone, and particularly with prostate cancer, when it's exposed to testosterone, it makes that cancer flourish. So there are many, many men that will have had treatments with radiotherapy and may well go on to have this form of hormonal therapy as well, which is injected underneath the skin to block testosterone so that it can't affect those prostate cells. And if you block testosterone, that prostate volume will decrease and the cancer cells will decrease. Oh, right. You often get given both. Well, we're almost at the end. I think the main thing is to talk about this. Men don't talk about this. You wouldn't start this conversation in your local pub. Can I be honest with you? I think it's a particularly British thing as well. Really? All Americans enjoy their colonoscopies quite regularly, don't they? <laughs> you know, they talk about it quite regularly, don't they? But not the done thing around here, is it? And I think there's a lot of mixed messaging out there. A lot of men feel that their sexual prowess is being threatened here by talking about things like the prostate, you know, or that it's a sign of problems of virility and all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of how people feel about themselves and see themselves, really, and talking about prostates and erectile problems and not passing water problem people do for various reasons patients often find this really difficult to talk about or men find this really tricky to talk about they particularly often don't want to tell their wives as well so they'll be struggling with this on their own and won't even tell their nearest and dearest about it and i get people who often come and see me in surgery who are in floods of tears because they've had the opportunity to tell me that they're worried about it and they go right okay what's the plan then and it's a relief for them to be able to discuss and to explore that they actually may have a problem but that there may be another explanation for it as well that isn't prostate cancer talk about it communicate those are the two things that we've hopefully got across today it's been fascinating that's been enjoyable for it yeah if you are at all concerned about it then go and talk to your doctor and as you said all the way through this you can't be specific about personal cases no no not at all but you can at least ease people in the right direction to get an issue which not a lot of people talk about and we've talked about it for the last 20 or so minutes and thank you for that because you know it worries me that's a pleasure to talk about it Dr David Gwynn thank you and thank you for listening to Menzine you've been listening to Menzine contact us on Twitter at Menzine Podcast or connect with us via Facebook just search for Menzine Podcast Menzine, exploring men's physical and mental well-being. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.